Pope St. John Paul II deserves to be called the Great. And there are many reasons for that. He was a great man, a great saint, and as I hope to underline in this talk, he was a great teacher of the faith, a great theologian. Now, speaking on a personal level, John Paul II was enormously important for me and for very many other priests that I know, certainly many Dominicans, but, uh, but many priests that I've met. In our Dominican community here in Washington, D.C., many of us were inspired to consider the priesthood and religious life by his words and his witness. But one of the other reasons that I think, uh, at least for me, it's so touching to reflect back on John Paul II, why he was such an important figure, is that it's extraordinarily unusual, I think, for especially for those of us living here in the United States, to sense some kind of personal connection or direct contact, you might say, with a saint, and especially in the case of a great saint like John Paul II. Even though most of us never met him in person, I never had the privilege of shaking his hand, I was close to him. I was physically close a few times on pilgrimage in Rome. But even if he was in Rome and I was in the US, it seemed, I think you could say he was near to us. So here in Washington DC at the Dominican House of Studies, we're right across the street from the Catholic University of America campus and the Basilica of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception. John Paul II came here and spoke with young people on the steps of that basilica, which is just really a stone's throw away from where I'm standing right now. And of course, many of us saw his visits in person in the US or at a World Youth Day or on pilgrimage in Rome. But more than this physical proximity, I think it's because he spoke to us as a father and he spoke to us as a personal witness to Christ. So this is the first main point that I want to make about John Paul II's theological greatness. That greatness grew out of his relationship to Christ and out of his life of prayer. And that's an authentic mark of any great theologian, of any theological greatness, that it is in contact with the deepest mysteries of the faith. It's in contact with God himself, who is the very source and object of our faith, the goal of our faith. As you probably know, John Paul II loved the great Carmelite saints, especially St. John of the Cross. He wrote his doctoral dissertation on St. John of the Cross. As a young man, thinking about the priesthood, he actually desired to be a Carmelite. Throughout his life, he maintained a kind of discipline of prayer, becoming a kind of contemplative, at least as much as he could be, while engaged in a very active apostolate, first as a priest, uh, as a doctoral student, as a chaplain to the university, as a bishop, cardinal, and eventually as a pope. I think, especially speaking as a Dominican, John Paul II is a kind of role model because he was a man with a love for God, with a love for souls, and with a love for truth. And these are hallmarks of the Dominican vocation, I think, of any priestly vocation, really. He was a man of prayer and of contemplation and of handing on the mysteries that he contemplated, to paraphrase St. Thomas Aquinas. One of the things that I found ex especially extraordinary in his manner of preaching and teaching, and I think we can presuppose also of his interior prayer, although we couldn't see that visibly, we could see him moved in prayer, was that John Paul II was strongly marked by what seemed to be a vivid sense of Christ's presence, of Christ's call to him. He wrote about that in a book he wrote on his own priestly vocation, very, very beautifully. Gift and Mystery, if you haven't read it, I recommend it to you. But his Preaching and teaching was also strongly marked by Christ's own voice, to which he, John Paul II, gave witness. The title that I chose for this talk, Duc in Altum, is actually taken from words of Jesus himself, spoken to Peter and to Peter's fishermen companions. After speaking to the crowds from Simon's boat, Jesus tells Simon Peter to Duc in Altum, put out into the deep for a catch. 
And in his encyclical at the close of the Jubilee year of 2000, called Novo Millenio Ineunte, John Paul II used this tagline, these words of Jesus, as a kind of hallmark for what he saw to be the call of the church to go forth in proclaiming the name of Christ and also in plumbing the mystery of Christ in its own reflection on the gospel, on the mystery of Christ. So he wrote these words. Peter and his first companions trusted Christ's words and they cast their nets. When they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, says the gospel. Duc in altum, John Paul wrote. These words ring out for us today and they invite us to remember the past with gratitude, to live the present with enthusiasm, and to look forward to the future with confidence. And then he quoted the letter to the Hebrews, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So Duc in Altum becomes a kind of constant way that the church returns to the mystery of Christ and the way it proclaims the mystery of Christ, a mystery that in itself is rich, in fact, inexhaustible, and in itself is unchanging and always valid for the Christian faithful. So it's a constant characteristic of the thought and preaching of John Paul II that the church's missionary outreach must be rooted in Jesus Christ, and in fact that this is the essence of the church itself in a certain way of putting it, to proclaim Christ to belong to Christ, to live as the body of Christ, as human beings brought into configuration by his sacred wounds, because it is through him that we have access to the Father and to the divine life of the Holy Trinity. So in the same encyclical, Novo Millenio Ineunte, John Paul II continued in these words, Jesus is the new man who calls redeemed humanity to share in his divine life. The mystery of the incarnation lays the foundations for an anthropology which, reaching beyond its own limitations and contradictions, moves towards God himself, indeed, towards the goal of divinization. This occurs through the grafting on of the redeemed to Christ and their admission into the intimacy of the Trinitarian life. It is only because the Son of God truly became man that man, in him and through him, can truly become a son of God. Now, if you were to read widely in the thought of John Paul II, you would know that this theme, the one that I've just quoted, is absolutely central for him. And in fact, it was already central in his doctoral thesis, which he wrote as a young man, he wrote it, completed it, and defended it in 1948 at the Dominican University in Rome, the Angelicum, under the direction of the famous Dominican Thomist, Father Reginald Garrigou Lagrange. So the young Carol Wojtyla wrote on faith in the work of St. John of the Cross. And his dissertation emphasized that in St. John of the Cross, as well as in St. Thomas Aquinas and in the Church Fathers, faith, the Christian faith, does not give us a knowledge of God as if he were some thing outside of us, but rather puts us in communion with God himself. And that through Christ, faith puts us on a trajectory towards a being with God that utterly transcends our creaturely existence and in fact makes possible our sharing in the divine nature itself. So the young Carol Wojtyla saw that this was essential to the view of John of the Cross and to the mystical union that the Carmelite mystic aspires to. Christ is absolutely at the center of this because it's only through the eternal Son of God taking our humanity that we are raised up through his grace and are made capable of sharing in his divinity. If you were to look later in his life, for example, at one of the most important homilies that he gave, his inaugural homily as Pope, you will also discover there this same theme. It's the radical centrality of Christ. And I think it's the core of what makes John Paul II a great theologian. 
But in his inaugural homily and in his teachings in general as pope, he does not phrase this in the terms of theological lecture. He phrases it rather as an urgent appeal for a personal encounter, an urgent appeal from a witness to Christ that the listener would encounter Christ, would embrace Christ, would entrust himself or herself to Christ, to trust in his truth and his power. So listen to these words of John Paul II from his inaugural homily as Pope. Brothers and sisters, do not be afraid to welcome Christ and to accept his power. Do not be afraid. Christ knows what is in man. He alone knows it. So often today, man does not know what is within him in the depths of his mind and heart. So often, he is uncertain about the meaning of his life on this earth. He is assailed by doubt, a doubt which turns into despair. We ask you, therefore, we beg you with humility and trust, let Christ speak to man. He alone has words of life, yes, of eternal life. This same theme constantly popped up in John Paul's outreach to young people, an outreach that was, as you know, extraordinary and unprecedented for a pope. So his messages to young people were, at least I found, profoundly inspiring, filled with hope, and the core message was Christ, and in fact, that Christ liberates us from confusion, from doubt, from fear, and leads us on the path to happiness. So he says things like this. Here's another quotation. Dear young people, like the first disciples, follow Jesus. Do not be afraid to draw near to him to cross the threshold of his dwelling, to speak with him face to face as you talk with a friend. Do not be afraid of the new life he is offering. He himself makes it possible for you to receive that life and practice it with the help of his grace and the gift of his spirit. That message was extremely powerful. It was extremely powerful for me personally to hear the Pope speak as it were directly to me. He's speaking also directly to you, saying that you have nothing to fear from Christ. He is the answer. He is the way to authentic freedom. He is the path to true happiness. He's the path to God. John Paul II, as perhaps you also know, was an intellectual. He was someone who also not only taught students, but cared for their souls. So early in his priesthood, he served as a university chaplain, as well as a lecturer at the Jagiellonian University in Krakow and the U Catholic University of Lublin. And despite living under an atheistic communist regime, he gathered a group of young people around him to meet for prayer, for intellectual discussion, to engage in works of charity. Now, if you're a theologian schooled in the great Western theological tradition, I think especially if you're a Thomist, you discover in John Paul II's writings the same perennial truths of the faith that we find in figures like Thomas Aquinas or St. Augustine or the other great fathers of the church. But now we find them presented in a new idiom, you might say, an idiom that strikes the ear with a kind of personalism that was so characteristic of John Paul II, an appeal to the person, an appeal that is given by a witness. So he spoke about the intellectual life, about the search for meaning and truth in very direct and personal ways. I can't help but quote from an address that I love just because it has such a geographic proximity to us here at the Dominican House of Studies in Washington. So when he came to the Catholic University of America early in his pontificate, he spoke to students from Catholic University on the steps of the Basilica. And 
you can find this video on YouTube, you can watch his address. I feel like, in a certain way, it's a charter for the Thomistic Institute's work on college campuses. John Paul II loved speaking with students, and he loved engaging in an intellectual exchange with them. And you can hear that in the words to this address, which I'd, I'm going to read just a few extracts from. He says, My dear students of the Catholic University, my first greeting on arriving at this campus is for you, to all of you. I offer the peace and joy of our Lord Jesus Christ, the centrality of Christ, we see. He goes on. I'm told that you have held an all-night prayer vigil to ask God's blessing on my visit. Thank you for such a beautiful gift. I would like to talk to you at length. I would like to listen to you and know what you think about yourselves and the world. But the time I have been given is so short. One thing you have told me already. By choosing to welcome me with the offering of your prayers, you have demonstrated that, and I think this is a very important point, you have demonstrated that you understand what is most important in your lives. Your contact with God. Your searching for the meaning of life by listening to Christ as he speaks to you in the scriptures. And then he goes on to talk about the problems of the age that students are often so preoccupied with. And we might think about the problems that our own time is beset with, the divisions and the confusions that our own time and culture are facing. And I think what John Paul II offers to the students of Catholic University is also very good advice for our time. So listen as he continues. Materialistic concerns and one-sided values are never sufficient to fill the heart and mind of a human person. A life reduced to the sole dimension of possessions, of consumer goods, of temporal concerns, will never let you discover and enjoy the full richness of your humanity. It is only in God, in Jesus, God made man, that you will fully understand what you are. He will unveil to you the true greatness of yourselves, that you are redeemed by him and taken up in his love, that you are made truly free in him who said about himself, if the Son frees you, you will be free indeed. I know that you, like students all over the world, are troubled by the problems that weigh on society around you and on the whole world. Look at those problems. Explore them. Study them. Accept them as a challenge but do it in the light of Christ. He is the way and the truth and the life. True knowledge and true freedom are in Jesus. So this address, its engagement with the intellectual life, its underlining of the absolute centrality of Christ and the primacy of the truth of Christ, this is extraordinary. John Paul II makes it clear here and in many other places that our mind is made to know and that the intellectual life is extremely important not only for students, not only for people at a university, not only for the church, but also for the world, for the evangelization of the world. And therefore, the church's perennial doctrines, doctrines which find their root in Christ's own person and preaching, they are of key importance. They are always valid. So he reaffirmed these truths and rearticulated them. And so now I'm moving into the main, you might say, the main uh, catalog of why John Paul II is great. We've seen that he emphasizes the centrality of Christ and rearticulates it in a very personal way. But we could now go through the many things that he did as Pope, or perhaps the many great encyclicals and other writings that he published as a part of his papal magisterium that make him so theologically great. One of the most important things that he did, something with enduring validity that continues to bear great fruit for the church, is his reaffirmation and rearticulation of, you might say, the whole of Christian doctrine in a certain sense, collecting in a definitive form the beliefs of the church published 
as the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Prior to the publication of the Catechism after the Second Vatican Council, there was some confusion about to what extent the Church continued to profess the same beliefs, continued to affirm the same truths, hold the same doctrines as before Vatican II. And you would find some theologians claiming that there was a discontinuity, a break with the past, that Vatican II represented a kind of rupture or a radical new beginning so that things from the past, the church's traditional teachings, could now be perhaps not even reformulated, but even in some cases set aside and disregarded. The Catechism of the Catholic Church re-articulated those doctrines, reformulated them in the light of the teaching of Vatican II, and presented them as perennially valid and as definitive for the church. Doctrines about the Trinity, doctrines about Jesus Christ, about grace and salvation, about prayer, about the sacraments, above all about the centrality of the Eucharist, and also doctrines about the church's moral teachings, about acts and choices that are unworthy of a human being and that separate one from communion with Christ, who is the source of supernatural life. But of course, we can't recount John Paul's theological greatness without mentioning his 14 papal encyclicals and his many other very important magisterial writings. There's great treasures of wisdom to be found in them. We don't have time to go through them all. Let me just mention what I think are some of the highlights. He's well known for his catechesis, given on Wednesday audiences, on the theology of the body. This articulated early in his pontificate, was a kind of robust defense of the church's account of human sexuality, especially of the church's teaching proclaimed by uh, or reaffirmed by Pope Paul VI in Humanae Vitae about uh, the Ill illegitimacy or the immorality of artificial contraception, uh, but a robust defense of a much bigger and richer account of what human sexuality means, what its place is in human anthropology, what its place is in the gospel. And he did this with a new idiom, with a kind of attentiveness to the richness of the human dimension of the communion between a husband and a wife. But we also should flag many other of the great theological themes that sounded throughout his pontificate. He addressed, for example, the problem of evil, especially in the wake of the suffering caused by Nazism, Communism, World War II, the totalitarian regimes that he lived under, both the Nazis and the Communists, and especially the evil of the Holocaust. He also wrote an encyclical on the centrality of the Eucharist, Ecclesia de Eucharistia. He corrected liturgical abuses that had crept in in some of the liturgical innovations after the Second Vatican Council. He wrote an encyclical on the importance of the Blessed Virgin Mary, Redemptoris Mater. He wrote an, an exhortation on the Rosary, Rosarium Virginis Mariae. He underlined the sanctity of every human life, he writing an encyclical on the Gospel of Life, Evangelium Vitae. He addressed religious life, the contemplative life. He talked about mercy. He addressed the centrality of Christ, the Redeemer of man. But in my view, the two most important encyclicals that he wrote were Fides et Ratio in 1998 and Veritatis Splendor in 1993. Unfortunately, we don't have time to go through both of these encyclicals because they're so, they're, they're so rich and so important. Uh, so I will only give you a brief summary, just a sentence or two about Fides et Ratio, and then we can go in more depth looking at Veritatis Splendor. Fides et Ratio reaffirmed the importance of the recovery not only of a robust faith for the church, but also a defense of reason and of philosophy, and especially of metaphysics. John Paul's claim was that the human person needs philosophy, in fact, needs metaphysics, in order to pursue and attain to the, attain to the truth in the fullest sense of that word. So the human spirit rises up to God on two wings, faith and reason, 
And he saw that in our time, at least in 1998, and I think the problems still persist, there are dangers not only in skepticism with respect to the faith, but also a, a loss of confidence, a loss of the majesty, you might say, of the reach of man's own natural capacity of reason to understand reality around him, even philosophically, and for this, metaphysics is especially important. But now, let me now turn to some uh, reflections on Veritatis Splendor, which, if I had to pick, I would say is the most important of John Paul II's encyclicals, and one that especially deserves the character characterization of being theologically great. A word about its context. It was issued in a time when the church faced a kind of growing relativism. In fact, a context where there was a weakened confidence even within the church about the church's perennial teachings and a growing dissent in the ranks of Catholic intellectuals and even a falling away from the church's teachings by the Catholic faithful. So John Paul II writes about this very directly, very clearly in the prologue of this encyclical. Here's a quotation why he's writing this encyclical. He says, it's no longer a matter of limited and occasional dissent, but of an overall and systematic calling into question of traditional moral doctrine. Thus, the traditional doctrine regarding the natural law and the universality and the permanent validity of its precepts is rejected, and certain of the church's moral teachings are found simply unacceptable. John Paul II thought that this was a very grave problem for the church when those who are supposed to be teachers of the faith, he was speaking specifically about moral theologians, but also uh, other theologians and others charged with teaching the faith, when they no longer proclaim and seem even to call into doubt uh, those traditional teachings which he says are perennially valid. John Paul II's core claim in Veritas of Splendor is that Christ is the answer for man's search for truth and that Christ teaches us the path to happiness. So it would be a big mistake to turn to Veritatis Splendor and think that it's just about teaching us certain moral commandments that have to always and everywhere be obeyed. Now, there is a dimension in which we need to affirm that, say, the Ten Commandments are perennially valid. But the point of Veritatis Splendor was not to speak about them in this way. In fact, the core beginning point for Veritatis Splendor is precisely the search for happiness and that the teachings of Christ are not imposed on us like a burden that weighs us down. They are not limitations given by a kind of divine law that destroy man's freedom. It's a central claim of the encyclical that the teachings of Christ and therefore the commandments of the church are the path to life and it is by responding to them with our freedom that we discover the trajectory towards true freedom and true happiness, which is life to Christ. This kind of renewal now characterizes what you might say a kind of Dominican, uh, especially rooted in the work of uh, the Dominican theologian Cervés Pinkers, a kind of ressourcement in Catholic moral theology. Very important, I think, uh, to Dominicans, at least studying here, this kind of ressourcement, that this recovery of the centrality of happiness and of the virtues for the moral life, rather than thinking about the moral life in terms of obligation or commandments. This recovery or ressourcement is obvious to us today, but it was not obvious in moral theology in 1993 when John Paul II issued this encyclical. And many of the reasons why today we're able to have a kind of robust appreciation of this older tradition in Catholic moral theology has its source in John Paul II's reaffirmation and kind of recalling it to mind in Veritatis Splendor. He began by this encyclical, a renewal of moral theology that we're still enjoying today. So listen to the words 
from the preface to John Paul II's encyclical. The splendor of truth shines forth in all the works of the Creator, and in a special way in man, created in the image and likeness of God. Truth enlightens man's intelligence and shapes his freedom, leading him to know and love the Lord. So truth shapes our freedom, and it leads us to Christ. And he goes on. No one can escape from the fundamental questions, what must I do? How do I distinguish good from evil? The answer is only possible thanks to the splendor of truth which shines forth deep within the human spirit. And now we come again to the centrality of Christ. Once again, this is from the prologue to Veritatis Splendor. John Paul writes, The light of God's face shines in all its beauty on the countenance of Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible God, the reflection of God's glory, full of grace and truth. Christ is the way and the truth and the life. Consequently, and this is an extraordinary statement, listen to it carefully, consequently, the decisive answer to every one of man's questions, his religious and moral questions in particular, is given by Jesus Christ, or rather is Jesus Christ himself. That is a profound theme of John Paul II, and it is found also in the documents of the Second Vatican Council, documents that John Paul himself helped author, especially this particular idea that it is Christ who reveals man to himself. The first chapter of Veritatis Splendor after this prologue is a beautiful reflection on the encounter between Jesus and the rich young man from chapter 19 of Matthew's Gospel. Speaking personally, uh, for me, this chapter, this reflection on the rich young man was profoundly influential. The rich young man comes to Jesus and asks, good teacher, what must I do in order to attain eternal life? And Jesus ends up by telling him to sell what you have, give to the poor, and follow me. I read this, both the gospel passage, but of course also John Paul's reflections on it in Veritatis Splendor as a young lawyer working at the Department of Justice. And for me, it immediately raised the question of whether I should remain in that life or whether I should perhaps follow Christ by serving him as a priest. Now, it took me a while to recognize that that was what God was calling me to. But it was the voice of John Paul II that initiated that call in my heart. And I think rereading that chapter is worthy of any spiritual retreat. So, in Veritatis Splendor, John Paul II reoriented Catholic moral theology away from the problems plaguing it in the immediate post-conciliar period, problems that included both a kind of legalism, a morality of obligation, thinking that the commandments were divine obligations imposed on us that we simply must obey, but that suppress our freedom in a certain sense, and also from a reaction to that legalistic understanding that we should accentuate human freedom with a kind of relativism vis-a-vis -vis doctrine, a kind of freedom from the commandments, so that man would then become free to pursue whatever goods he happened to judge for himself to be worthy. Rather, John Paul II reoriented Catholic moral theology back towards the deeper and richer classical tradition of a morality of virtue and happiness. So there are, in my opinion, three reasons why this great encyclical will remain great. The first, the most important, is a kind of central pillar of the Christian tradition. It's that the truth, including moral truth, about, for example, what we owe our neighbor, about what leads us to God, about what disrupts our relationship with God, that this moral truth has an objective dimension. It's not always relative to historical circumstances. It's not always relative to personal circumstances. Now, it's true that throughout our lives, 
throughout history more broadly. There are many things that might change, but there are some truths that don't change. So you can think of some very obvious examples of this. Murder, adultery, rape. These acts are always wrong. They're wrong in every case. There are never circumstances that justify engaging in acts like that. There are no exceptions. These kinds of things may never be directly chosen, no matter how good your intentions are. St. John Paul II in Veritatis Splendor explains why. Listen to this quotation. The reason why a good intention is not itself sufficient, but a correct choice of actions is also needed. You actually have to do the right thing. You have to aim at the right thing. Is that the human act depends on its object. Whether that object is capable or not of being ordered to God, to the one who alone is good and thus brings about the perfection of the person. So having a good intention, of course, is important, but it's not enough. The object of the act has a certain objective moral quality to it. And it will either order you to God or turn you away from God. And so something that is moving you further from God can never be a part of the perfection of the person. That means in practice that even when we have the best of reasons for our actions, the best intentions in the world, if the action is not rightly ordered to God, its wrongness is not simply due to the violation of some commandment or obligation. It's not the law that makes the act wrong. It's rather because the act itself leads us away from God who is the supreme good. It wounds us, it injures other people, it blocks our attainment of true happiness, it produces a real evil. That's the first point. The second point that I think makes Veritatis Splendor great, John Paul underlines that the church's moral teachings are saving truths. They are a part of the gospel. They're good news, in other words. The new law of love that Christ gives us as the pinnacle of his teaching, the very love that the Holy Spirit pours into our hearts and then makes us capable of living as Christ's disciples, this new law of love is incompatible with breaking the commandments of God's covenant, which was ratified in Christ's blood. John Paul II puts it this way. Here's another quote from Veritatis Splendor, number 76. When the Apostle Paul sums up the fulfillment of the law and the precept of love of neighbor as oneself, he's not weakening the commandments, but reinforcing them, since he is revealing their requirements and their gravity. Love of God and of one's neighbor cannot be separated from the observance of the commandments of the covenant renewed in the blood of Jesus Christ and in the gift of the Spirit. It is an honor characteristic of Christians to obey God rather than men and accept even martyrdom as a consequence, like the holy women and men of the Old and New Testaments, who are considered such because they gave their lives rather than perform this or that particular act contrary to faith or to virtue. So the splendor of the Christian life consists in part in bearing witness to the truth of Christ, in remaining faithful to his commandments, which are the way, concretely, that we live out the love of God and of neighbor. The third key point, and we're drawing to a conclusion here, the third key point in Veritatis Splendor is the powerful reflection of John Paul II on the nature of authentic freedom. This was something very important to him and something that shines through in that encyclical. Why has God given us this gift of freedom, and how do we exercise it in response to learning Christ and his commandments? So, Veritatis Splendor, number 35, God's law does not reduce, much less do away with, human freedom. Rather, it protects and promotes that freedom. 
Now, I can tell you, when I first read the passages in Veritas, Veritatis Splendor on freedom, when I was a young lawyer, I was puzzled because this did not seem to correspond to what I understood freedom to mean. It always had seemed to me that where laws are instituted, freedom is pushed back, sort of like uh, a property line between two neighboring houses. If you move the line this way, uh, the guy over here has less property. So if you want more freedom, you need to push the law back to give yourself a greater zone of liberty, right? That was the way I had always thought of it. But this is not what John Paul II depicts in Veritatis Splendor. Actually, he shows that there is a deeper sense of freedom, and the purpose of freedom actually is to understand what the law is teaching us about the good, and as we configure our lives in obedience to the law of Christ, we come to acquire a new and higher freedom that allows us to really attain to the good which rebelling against the law would never allow us to achieve. So as we grow in moral virtue, as we integrate the law into our lives, we also grow in authentic freedom. Freedom itself, this is a quotation from Veritatis Splendor number 41, freedom itself was not given to us by God so that we could decide of ourselves what is good and what is evil, but precisely so that we could respond in freedom and in love to his offer of friendship, life, and beatitude. Man's free obedience to God's law effectively, I'm sorry, that was, that was not John Paul II. Here's the quotation. That was Dominic Legg. Here's John Paul. Man's free obedience to God's law effectively implies that human reason and human will participate in God's wisdom and providence. Law must therefore be considered an expression of divine wisdom. By submitting to the law, freedom submits to the, the truth of creation. So law, in a way, is expressing the truth, the truth about the world around us, the truth about who we are, the truth about God, the truth about our way to God. Law is a teacher. And as we understand what the law is teaching us and respond to it in freedom, then we begin to move towards the goal, which is God himself. John Paul II who experienced both totalitarian Nazism and totalitarian communism in Poland, knew well the threats to human freedom that arise from the denial of objective truth. And in Veritatis Splendor, he underlines the danger that relativism poses to freedom. We should not imagine, I don't think, that because we live in enlightened democracies, we don't live under a communist or a Nazi dictatorship, that a similar fate could not befall us if our culture were to cease to acknowledge the reality of objective truth. So another quotation from Veritatis Splendor. This is number 99. Totalitarianism, John Paul writes, arises out of a denial of truth in the objective sense. And now his reason, his explanation is very interesting. If there is no transcendent truth, he says, in obedience to which man achieves his full identity, then there is no sure principle for guaranteeing just relations between people. Their self-interest as a class, group, or nation would inevitably set them up in conflict in opposition to one another. If one does not acknowledge transcendent truth, then the force of power takes over, and each person tends to make full use of the means at his disposal in order to impose his own interests or his own opinion with no regard for the rights of others. This is the great danger, and we could ask whether we're beginning to experience something like this ourselves. If there is no possibility of a discussion based on the truth, on resolving disputes based on the truth, then what you're left with is an appeal to force, and this leads to totalitarianism. That brings me to my conclusion of speaking about Veritatis Splendor. Let me just make one final concluding point about the centrality of love for John Paul II. Christ is at the heart of his thought, and the great vocation of the Christian is to know and to love 
Christ. Just before he was elected as Pope, after the death of John Paul I, Carol Wojtyla knew that his name might be proposed as Pope, and he gave this beautiful and moving homily while he was in Rome just before the conclave began. Christ asked Simon Peter, do you love me more than do the others? This question was so difficult, so very demanding. And possibly Simon Peter of all the apostles best understood how this question exceeds the scope of a human being. That is why he trembled in answering. He was giving himself up to the love of him who was asking when he answered, Lord, you know that I love you. The succession of Peter, the summons to the office of the papacy, always contains within it a call to the highest love, to a very special love. Always when Christ says to a man, come follow me, he asks him what he asks of Simon. Do you love me more than do the others? A human heart must tremble at this question because there is also a demand. You must love. You must love more than the others do. If the entire flock of sheep is to be entrusted to you, if the charge, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, is to reach the scope which it reaches in the calling and mission of Peter. Christ's summons has a double meaning, John Paul II wrote. It's a summons to service and a summons to die. So let's conclude by invoking the intercession of John Paul II with the prayer from Mass uh, for his feast day. O God, who are rich in mercy and who willed that the blessed John Paul II should preside as Pope over your universal church, grant, we pray, that instructed by his teaching, we may open our hearts to the saving grace of Christ, the sole Redeemer of mankind, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. Pope St. John Paul the Great, pray for us. All right. Thank you so much, Father Dominic. That was uh, enlightening and wonderful, and we certainly have had a lot of activity on our various platforms. So we're, we do have some time for some questions, and I'm just going to kind of dive right in here. Uh, a couple of people have been writing in. We do have some students viewing on Zoom, so if any of you guys would like to ask a question at some point, just let us know. Um, but I'll just start off with one of the earliest questions we got. So you, uh, you spoke about a couple of things that St. John Paul II wrote in his, uh, throughout his lifetime. Uh, Bernardo of, on YouTube would like to know what of the writings of St. John Paul II should every Catholic absolutely read? And are there ones that are better for those who are more philosophically and theologically inclined? Uh, and, and likewise, are there ones that would be better for someone who's had no you know, connection or training in philosophy at all? Well, I think maybe I would start with uh, the book. I mean, if you want to kind of start at the, the ease, easing your way in, you can read um, his uh, book, Gift and Mystery, which is just a short book that he published while he was pope, kind of reflections on his call to the priesthood. And then he published another book. These were popular books, not really magisterial books, um, called Crossing the Threshold of Hope. Uh, these books are very accessible, and they're very beautiful. You could also certainly read some of his homilies. Um, it's true that some of his more technical writings are demanding. The Theology of the Body is kind of technical, and um, you have to sort of learn the terminology in order to really uh, plumb its depths. But uh, many of his teachings are, uh, are wonderful, like the, the chapter, uh, the opening chapter of uh, Veritatis Splendor about the encounter with a rich young man. I think that's beautiful, it's wonderful. Um, also, some of the opening passages of Fides et Ratio. But you could also read um, Salvifici Dolores, which is on the redemptive meaning of suffering. Uh, that's an apostolic letter, I think, um, and um, so it's not an encyclical letter, letter uh, but it's a uh, it's not very long, and it's a kind of meditation on the meaning of suffering, and especially suffering in the Christian life. Uh, very, very rich there. You could read some of what he had to say about the Blessed Virgin Mary. So, Redemptoris Mater, which is his encyclical on the Blessed Virgin Mary. Also, I think, pretty, uh, qu quite accessible and, uh, and beautiful. 
But if, uh, I mean, my, my favorites, of course, as I, as I made clear, I think, in the talk, are Fides et Ratio and Veritatis Splendor. Um, I think reading those in their totality is totally worth it. It really repays uh, reading. Veritato Splendor in particular has, it does have some passages that are dealing with sort of technical problems uh, in moral theology. Um, so, you know, if you're reading it and, and you come to a spot that, like, you just don't quite understand what he's talking about, you know, just move on and, and uh, you know, circle back to those things later, perhaps. Uh, but it's well worth uh, reading for really any serious Christian. All right, wonderful. Thank you. So our next question comes from Catherine Stoffel. From, she's one of our chapter leaders at the chapter we have at Texas A&M. So she has sort of a two-part question, and uh, it's a little bit more technical. So I think we'll just we'll go with the first part and then see if we can tackle the second part, too. So her first, the first part of her question is, could you speak on the relationship between the personalism of Levinas and John Paul II? And then her second question has to do with when you were speaking on um, obedience to law and freedom. So she asks, on the definition of freedom John Paul II offers us, as an ability to respond to in obedience to law, the truth of creation, how might Spinoza's definition of freedom be nuanced or corrected by the thought and definition offered to us by John Paul II? So there's kind of a lot there. I don't know if you want to you know, take both of them kind of in one stride or if we'd like to do one at a time. Um, yeah, well, let me just say, I mean, I, I don't know that I'm even equipped, Catherine, to, to respond adequately uh, to your questions without giving some, them some more thought. But um, let me just say two, two remarks, one about personalism and John Paul II, and then one about uh, these theories of freedom and, and going uh, deeper in them. So um, on the question about uh, some you know, maybe other personalist philosophers uh, or thinkers, uh, like Emmanuel Levinas, as, as I think you were referring to, and John Paul II. It's true that John Paul II represents uh, a kind of new approach or a kind of new manifestation of personalism. I can tell you that when I first started studying uh, philosophy, I was uh, I had just finished um, working as a lawyer. I was preparing to enter the Dominican order. I studied philosophy at Catholic University for, uh, I did a master's program effectively, um, and I went to the dean uh, who was a Dominican priest, Father Kurt Pritzel, and I said, you know, I am so inspired by John Paul II, I want to take a course on Christian personalism. And he said, listen, I think you really should be studying Aristotle. I said, Father, Father, I really want to study Christian personalism because I had been so inspired by John Paul II. And that was, so he, he let me uh, take the course even though it didn't really fit into his plan for what he thought I needed to study. Um, and uh, it, was, it was a wonderful uh, experience to uh, delve into some of the sources. I mean, I think sources that are closer to, to John Paul II, you might think of um, uh, Jacques Maritain, who's uh, known as a, a kind of Thomistic personalist. Uh, there are um, some, Gabriel Marcel, who's a, uh, a personalist who um, would be closer to John Paul II. You, you have uh, Phenomenology, Edmund Husserl in the background. Um, uh, and I think there are some wonderful ways of seeing that that uh, personalism was a way to re-articulate classical uh, understandings of the human person or classical philosophical truths, even classical theological truths, from the scholastic tradition, so fully compatible with Aristotle or St. Thomas Aquinas, but now in a kind of new idiom, sort of approaching them from a different direction, from the side of the human person and sort of the the phenomenology of the human person, that is the, the human person's experience of relating to another, for example, uh, and the spiritual dimension of human interpersonal relations. But I think one of the things that, that, that becomes very clear in John Paul II, and it's very, very clear in um, Fides et Ratio, is that uh, even if you're going to speak in a personalist idiom, you cannot abandon metaphysics. So um, a grounding in classical philosophical categories, which is a grounding in, uh, I mean, metaphysics is the philosophical discipline that deals with being or reality as a whole. Uh, you, you can't escape that. And sometimes you will find personalists who will really say, well, we just need to put metaphysics to the side and we're just going to go with a totally new way of doing it. And John Paul II clearly in uh, Fides et Ratio holds that, you know what, we. Personalism um, always has to be, have a kind of metaphysical backbone, and that is fundamentally important. And I think that's a profoundly also Thomistic perspective to have. Um, 
your other question about freedom, uh, well, maybe I'm, uh, I've gone on for too long, and, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to punt on that one and move to another question. I see you're nodding on Zoom, so I think I have permission to do that. Seems perfectly fair. All right. Yes, uh, so we, we do have a lot of questions, so I think we have time for one or maybe two more. Um, so this question comes from one of our viewers on YouTube. Um, and just uh, a preface to the question is that John Paul II um, is, you know, uh, famous for, uh, or of many things, he's famous for um, writing the work uh, Theology of the Body, and so this question is kind of coming from the context of that. Um, so the question is, um, is it really possible today, especially for young people who live in, I guess you could say, kind of a hypersexualized culture, to really live chastely? And how can we help them to do that? And you know, how can, I guess, young people themselves do that? And how can it be communicated to them that this is something that is not you know, just possible, but good? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it's something that I think uh, is a very real existential question for many young people, many students, because we live in such a hypersexualized culture. And um, so often people encounter sexual images, or, uh, or even, even worse than that, uh, in their own lives uh, before they really realize how much damage it's doing to them, um, and, uh, and that it becomes then very difficult to escape uh, a kind of downward vicious cycle there. Um, so uh, at the same time, I think John Paul II uh, very, I mean, he, he has many beautiful things to say about the call to celibate chastity. And uh, I can tell you that, you know, when I was first thinking about the priesthood, that's, of course, uh, one of the first things that came to my mind, like, well, uh, you know, do I really want to try to embrace a life of celibate chastity? Um, it wasn't obvious to me that giving up marriage and family was the, the path that, was, that I wanted to go on, although it seemed like God was calling me to this, so it forced me to sort of really examine that call and the possibility of, uh, of living a kind of fruitful life in celibate chastity. But I think uh, John Paul II bears witness to it. So does the Christian tradition. I can tell you that it's been enormously fruitful in my own life. And, and also, uh, so maybe more to the point of the, of the question, uh, for someone who has uh, become trapped in a vice of lust, is it really possible to escape and how do you do it? Well, here's, here's very brief like uh, pastoral advice, uh, which is number one, absolutely it is possible. Uh, and it really does happen, and I've seen it happen in many people's lives, so do not despair. However, if you try to do it from your own power, your own resources, you will find it is very difficult. Perhaps not absolutely impossible, but pretty darn hard to do, and a lot of people, by trying to use just willpower alone, find themselves frustrated and they may begin to despair. Don't do that. Uh, instead, rely on God's power. And you might say, okay, that sounds like great, but I mean, how do I practically speaking do that? God is very powerful. He is much more powerful than your sins or your vices. So he, and he, he wants you to be free of them. So he loves you and he's going to help you. So don't despair. Instead, turn to him in moments of weakness and ask for his help. So it won't come from you, but it will come from him. And he will, he will really help you. He does really do this for people. So practically speaking, what I would recommend is, number one, uh, make a daily prayer for God's help in the domain of chastity if you find this a struggle. So that means perhaps waking up in the morning and immediately kneeling down by the side of your bed and saying just a very simple prayer, Lord, help me to be chaste today. Help me to be pure of heart today. And then when you find yourself tempted, if an impure image, for example, comes into your mind, the important thing to do is to immediately turn to God's assistance. Ask him for help. Say the name of Jesus. Say the name of Mary. Jesus, help me. Mary, pray for me. Uh, and then do your best to turn your mind to something else. You can't replace a negative with a negative. You need something positive. So direct your mind to something that will turn your mind's attention away from this distraction. And it's helpful to know like when you find yourself tempted to be especially careful in those circumstances. Uh, you know, thinking, seeing the patterns in your own life may, may help you figure that out. And then, God forbid that you fall into uh, unchastity, but if you do, go right to confession, because this is the best way to be healed of the wound that you've caused yourself, uh, be forgiven of the guilt that you've incurred, and receive anew 
an infusion of God's charity, God's grace, which really will help you. So sometimes God leaves us in a kind of a period of um, difficulty and struggle. Uh, it's kind of mysterious to us. Why, why does God permit us to continue to have, say, divided desires or a divided heart or to continue to, to struggle and perhaps sometimes even to fall uh, if he's powerful enough to stop it? Well, that, that is mysterious, and why he does it in individual cases is hard to say. Um, but perhaps he's asking us to grow in faith and to grow in humility, to learn that we're not doing it of ourselves, and we have to rely more and more on him. But um, let me just conclude by, by reiterating again. It really is possible. I've seen it happen. People achieve great interior freedom and kind of self-possession in virtue of God's grace. So trust in God. Ask him for help, and he will, he will help you.